Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hey, it's Latif from Radio Lab. Our goal with each episode is to make you think, how did I live this long and not know that? Radio Lab, adventures on the edge of what we think we know. Listen wherever you get podcasts. This is Politics with Amy Walter from The Takeaway. Now, earlier this year, when we were planning our election coverage, we'd hoped to take you all on a tour through some of the states that would be the most critical in deciding this election. We're going to jump in our cars, crisscross these regions, meet with voters and candidates, soak up the flavor and the food and the mood of these battleground regions. But alas... We have to settle for a virtual trip. You don't have to buckle up, but here we go. This week's destination is the Tar Heel State, North Carolina, with its 15 electoral votes. It's one of a handful of states truly up for grabs this election. Since 2008, no presidential candidate has carried the state by more than three points. The most recent polls show Joe Biden ahead of President Trump by about two points. Well, North Carolina is very diverse geographically and uh, politically. There are many conservative pockets in North Carolina, but there are many progressive pockets in North Carolina also. That's Jarvis Hall. He's an associate professor of political science at North Carolina Central University. When you look at the counties in the east, they have a tendency to be more conservative. The counties in the western part of the state, with the exception of Asheville and to some extent, Watauga County, uh, have a tendency to be more conservative also. But in the center part of the state, what a lot of people refer to as the I-85 corridor, have a tendency to be more progressive, more liberal, more moderate, if you will. And they uh, would include the Triangle area of North Carolina, uh, the uh, Triad area of North Carolina and Charlotte. There's only been one Democrat running for president that's been able to build a winning coalition in North Carolina over the last 10 elections. That was Barack Obama in 2008. Obama and the campaign he had on the ground were very important to the success that he experienced here in North Carolina. A good bit of that success was grounded in the fact that they were able to increase the number of 18 to 25 year olds as a as a proportion of the electorate. And what we saw was a lot of excitement, a lot of organizing, a lot of uh, grassroots activity, especially on college campuses. And Obama came to the state several times. For example, he came to the campus that I work on, North Carolina Central University, actually before he was the nominee. And that generated a lot of interest and a lot of excitement. And, And it was very important, especially for young people of color, as well as white youth, to have a viable candidate, a candidate who was young, who was different, who appeared to have good ideas, who was able to mobilize them. Mobilizing young voters isn't something that's come easy for Democrats' presumptive nominee, Joe Biden. In fact, it's one of the bigger criticisms of him as a candidate. But primary voters didn't ride on a wave of enthusiasm when they picked Biden, picked him because he's viewed as the person best suited to beat Donald Trump. 
Now, further evidence that this election's a referendum on Donald Trump is apparent in North Carolina's Senate race, where Republican Senator Tom Tillis is being challenged by Democrat Cal Cunningham. And according to Rusty Jacobs, political reporter for North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC, the Trump factor is the biggest challenge for Tillis. One of the surprising things in the aftermath of the quarterly campaign fundraising reports is that Cal Cunningham took in much more than Tom Tillis. Now, the campaigns, I think, when it comes to cash on hand, are fairly close, but the recent receipts for Cal Cunningham indicate a lot more enthusiasm, a lot more momentum. And and Tom Tillis, for better or for worse, has tied himself to President Trump going back. I mean, going back to when he reversed his position on funding for the border wall uh, that President Trump supports. And he has tied himself to the fate uh, of the president. And right now, because of public concerns over the coronavirus, health restrictions, and the debate over whether uh, restrictions are necessary, uh, he may have tied himself to a position that public opinion for now uh, seems to oppose. So what's bad news for Senator Tom Tillis? It's good news for Cal Cunningham. Oh, absolutely. I had a chance to talk with Cunningham about the race this week, and I started out by asking him why voters should choose him over Senator Tillis. In the push and pull of Washington politics, uh, Tom Tillis has decided over and over again to put the special interests on Capitol Hill, his partisan interests ahead of North Carolina's interests. And look, I've grown up in North Carolina. I'm educated in North Carolina, have built a business uh, headquartered here in North Carolina. I have served with uh, troops from Fort Bragg and Iraq and then Afghanistan. I know my state uh, very, very intimately and deeply. I love the state that's made me who I am. And in the big fights and the big conversations in Washington, I'm going to make sure that our interests are heard and are put first. And uh, we've got uh, real serious challenges facing our people. And uh, my North Star is going to be the people of North Carolina. What has he not been able to deliver to North Carolina? If you're, you're saying specifically that, you know, you, you're going to always look out for North Carolina. I'm sure if we had him on here, he would point to ways in which he's delivered for the state. But is your argument that he's too close to President Trump and is looking out only for his standing with the president? Well, I mean, well, well, let's let's talk about one of the most urgent issues facing North Carolinians today, and that is health care. He has been a consistent uh, vote to repeal the Affordable Care Act, which puts at risk over one and a half million North Carolinians coverage. He was the speaker of the state house that blocked the Medicaid expansion that would include and cover bring down costs for hundreds of thousands of North Carolinians. I'm on the other side of those issues, which were already present before the spring of this year, but are deeply urgent to our people. And so if we just start with the issue that is most frequently talked about in all of the virtual town hall meetings that I'm having engaging with North Carolinians, uh, I'm for expanding coverage and bringing down costs. He has been on the other side of those debates time and time again. Democrats haven't won a Senate seat there since 2008. So 
What's different now? What are you able to do that these other Democrats were not? There are a couple of things I think going on. One of them, some some of them are variables outside my control. This is a very unique moment in America. This crisis, both public health and economic crisis, the uh, way in which many of North Carolinians are justifiably in the streets about persistent uh, police misconduct. Uh, this is a unique moment. But I would say second to that, I'm a native of North Carolina. I grew up in a small town in a rural community, and I understand my state very, very well. I know the people of North Carolina very, very well. And I would say as well that I'm a veteran and my family is a military family in a state where that is a critical part of our DNA. I've uh, served with the paratroopers at Fort Bragg. I have both served overseas with the special operations troops from Fort Bragg and and even taught Green Berets in a classroom uh, at Fort Bragg. And so my family has lived a an experience uh, that is a very integral part of the DNA of our state. And that is we're a premier state that answers the call to serve uh, by putting on a uniform. And I can have conversations with North Carolinians that arise from that life experience. And I think that makes me uniquely suited to serve North Carolina, but it also helps build a bridge uh, to some North Carolinians, either who haven't recently participated in politics, but also I can go places and have conversations that often Democrats don't have. Speaking of Fort Bragg, there's obviously, as you know, been a lot of attention to bases like Fort Bragg that were named after Confederate generals. And there's recently an amendment that passed in the Senate committee um, that would give the Pentagon the ability to change the names of these installations uh, in about three years time. Is that something that you could support? Well, I have called for us moving forward to rename Fort Bragg. This is a premier military installation. We call it the center of the military universe. And it's not an exaggeration to say that if the president, not just if, but when any president has to dial 911, the phone rings at Fort Bragg. And so how this installation got named for a slave-owning traitor to the United States who had bad personal qualities and was a failed general is a mystery to most of us here in North Carolina. And there are walls of valorous service members on the walls in these headquarters where I've served, any number of whom would be suitable names for this installation. And we have a process in in the Army. We routinely name and rename installations and properties. I think it's a good conversation for us to have at Fort Bragg and in the communities around Spring Lake and Fayetteville. And I think it should lead us to name it uh, after someone else. As you pointed out earlier, you said you could go into a lot of these small towns and rural communities. Uh, your background in the military really gives you that that cachet that maybe other Democrats haven't had before. It also seems to to me that you're suggesting that you do have, um, while you are running as a Democrat, you are trying to distinguish yourself maybe from national Democrats. And I'm wondering if there are either issues or proposals that are out there that the national party, maybe even presidential candidate Joe Biden, 
are putting forward that you disagree with? Fair question, Amy. My, you know, my, first of all, I'm, I seek not to represent a party in Washington. I seek to represent the people who call North Carolina home. And so part of what I'm doing here is less about being a Democrat and much more about being in tune with and in touch with the voices in North Carolina. There are going to be times when I disagree with my own party, and I'm very explicit about that. There is a world uh, where Donald Trump is in a second term, and as the senator for North Carolina, I've got to figure out ways that we can work together when it suits and drives uh, North Carolina's interests. Now, either uh, Joe Biden or Donald Trump, I would expect to hold accountable if they are pursuing things inconsistent with North Carolina's interests and the voices I'm hearing from here. So there are going to be times when I disagree with my own party, and I've sort of got a strong Scotch-Irish independent streak as well. It's part about growing up in a small and rural community. It's a part about uh, my own temperament. Uh, but there will be days when uh, I'm certain that I will disagree with the leadership of, of the Democratic Party. Speaking of sort of, you know, the the pressures you may get from your own party, um, we are a long way away from this. I recognize your focus right now is just on the election. But should you win and should Democrats be in the majority in 2021, there is going to be a tremendous amount of pressure coming from progressive groups and many Democrats to change the rules about the filibuster, basically eliminating it altogether so that 51 votes is enough to pass any legislation. Would you support doing that, doing away with the filibuster? Rather than do away with the filibuster, Amy, what I have been calling for here is a reform in the way that rule is used. And uh, and what it would require is if the minority party genuinely wants to shine a light and hold up progress on the bill, on a bill on the floor of the U.S. Senate, the minority party needs to actually take to the floor and have the debate. And that means canceling the weekends, rolling in the cots, leaving the lights on at night so that the American people can understand why the minority party feels that there is something that the majority party is doing either to run over the rights of Americans or trying to uh, do something that is abusive. I think that's consistent with the underlying principle behind the filibuster, and that is in the great deliberative body that is the United States Senate, we should be hearing the debate. And rather than requiring 60 votes to cut off the debate, a procedural trick uh, that really has been used to thwart progress on measure after measure, let's move forward with the legislation, but hear and get and give ample time for there to be hearing on what the minority party's umbrage with the, the legislation is. Frankly, in sort of Mr. Smith goes to Washington style, the American people will then get to weigh in and that will only make legislating more legitimate. It will make the voice of the American people register more fully in what's happening in the U.S. Senate. And I think it's more true to what the measure was originally intended to be, and that is to drive public debate on the issues of the day. Cal Cunningham is the Democrat challenging Republican Senator Tom Tillis in North Carolina. We reached out to the Tillis campaign for an interview. 
but did not receive a response as of our recording. Like other states, election officials in North Carolina are preparing for a spike in absentee ballots due to public health concerns over the coronavirus. Lawmakers in the state came together recently in a rare show of bipartisanship and passed legislation they hope will make the voting process safe, accessible, and fair. So what are some of these changes? I asked Rusty Jacobs, political reporter at WUNC, who we heard from at the top of the show, to walk us through these changes. Recent legislation allows for fewer witnesses. It used to be that you need two witnesses to submit a valid absentee-by-mail ballot. Now it's just one, and that's just a recognition that a lot of people are homebound and living with just one person, if that many, to witness uh, their signing and submission of an absentee ballot. They are allowing for applying for absentee-by-mail ballots uh, by fax and email in addition, to on, in addition to mail or going to your local county board of elections to request one. So that's a big deal. They, they want to make it as easy as possible. North Carolina has been sort of the center of arguments and challenges over voting laws. There was a back and forth for some time about voter ID laws in the state. Then, of course, we had the controversy in 2018 with a ballot harvesting scheme by a Republican consultant. How confident should North Carolinians be that the process that's set up in the state for voting is going to be fair and that it is well regulated? I think the efforts and and the fact that there was such bipartisan support for the recent voting legislation with respect to absentee by mail voting and getting more money from the federal government to make polling places safer should indicate that there is a sincere effort on the part of state government and local elections leaders and officials to make access paramount. That doesn't mean there aren't advocates out there and people that still think there are forces arrayed against making access as broad as possible. You brought up voter ID. So it's important to note that there was a a constitutional amendment approved by voters allowing for voter ID. Later, there was an enabling legislation that said how that would happen. Now, a federal court has put a hold that has blocked that law from taking effect. There is a preliminary injunction in place put in place by a federal district court judge that ruled that the voter ID, the most recent voter ID law has problems that mirror problems with an earlier voter ID law that was discarded by a federal court for being racially biased. One of the issues in the preliminary litigation over the most recent law is that it didn't allow for public assistance cards, food benefits cards, to be used as a form of voter ID at the polls. So what Republicans did with this most recent absentee by mail legislation is they stuck in a provision that would allow for public assistance cards to be used as a valid form of ID at the polls. A lot of advocates who are concerned about allowing the broadest possible group of voters to go to the polls see that as an attempt by the Republicans to circumvent the pending litigation and to get voter ID in effect. The Democrats in the state legislature knew about the provision they weighed its possible threats or they, they weighed its possible significance and decided in the end that 
Voter ID is not going to happen. There's simply not enough time to get the litigation settled, not enough time to get systems in place in time for the for 2020. So there aren't many that people, at least in the state legislature, who believe voter ID will be an issue for 2020. It remains pending litigation. It remains under review and 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 that won't be resolved before the 2020 elections. So, one other thing that a lot of states are talking about is, okay, how do we make sure that it is safe for people who would like to vote in person? And how many polling places can we safely keep open? What is the state of North Carolina doing about that? Every election official I spoke to, they all say the same thing. They will have the number of polling sites and precincts open on election day and for one-stop early voting for 17 days prior to election day uh, that would be open in any other time. That's the goal. That's the belief. How is that going to happen? That's the big question, right? In Wisconsin, in their April primary, in places like Milwaukee and Green Bay, you saw hundreds or dozens of polling sites reduced to just a handful because of shortages with poll workers. Like in other places in North Carolina, the average age of poll workers, these volunteers are typically 60 or older, the most vulnerable to the effects of the coronavirus. That being said, there are intense recruiting efforts underway uh, to convince younger people to help out at the polls this fall. Uh, The recent legislation we've been talking about allows for unemployed people to continue receiving their jobless benefits in addition to any stipends, because there are stipends. So you can get stipends for working as a poll worker and not have it disrupt your jobless benefits, your unemployed benefits. That was an important provision in the most recent law. There was another change to the elections law in this most recent legislation that allows for counties to assign precinct judges who may not be from a particular precinct. You, as long as you're from that county, uh, you can work in a, in a precinct that you don't actually live in. Uh, it should be noted, too, that this legislation provides state matching funds that gets federal money to help uh, get enough personal protective equipment for poll workers and to hand out masks to each and every voter that wants one, individual pens and styluses for voters to use, money for sanitizer to clean down each voter booth after every use. So the elections officials saw what happened in places like Wisconsin and Georgia and made sure that a law was passed that would help them recruit more volunteers and equip them with all the personal protective equipment and sanitizer they need to make sure that every voter that wants to vote in person either early or on election day will be able to do so. Now, even with all these changes, there's one more thing election officials are trying to get out ahead of. Here's what the chairman of the State Board of Elections told Rusty Jacobs. People have grown accustomed to going to bed on election night, going to bed either knowing the results or confident that the results will be known the next day. The big change on the horizon is that there will be a greater number of absentee by mail ballots to count. That will likely lead to delays in getting the results. It will not mean there's any less integrity in the outcome or reliability in the outcome. But elections officials want people prepared to wait a little bit longer to hear the final results. That's a new normal we're all going to have to adjust to. Each 
each election season, political memoirs abound, doorstops that sometimes divulge more than intended. No matter how diligently they present themselves in the most electable light, they always reveal themselves, their insecurities, their fears, their ambitions. How to read a Politico on this week's On the Media from WNYC. Find On the Media wherever you get your podcasts. On Tuesday, three states held primaries and runoff elections that had been postponed due to the uncertainty of the coronavirus. In Maine, Democrats picked State House Speaker Sarah Gideon to face off against Republican Susan Collins, while in Texas, M.J. Hager, an Iraq war veteran, was chosen to take on Republican Senator John Cornyn. These elections came at a time when the political environment is about as terrible as it could be for the GOP. With no signs of the pandemic abating, the majority of Americans give President Trump failing grades on his handling of the crisis. Trump is also trailing Joe Biden in almost every competitive state. And Trump's toxic brand seems to be seeping down into down-ballot races. Control of the Senate is on the line this year. And at this point, Democrats look as well-positioned as ever to take the majority this fall. To better understand what the race for control of the Senate looks like, I sat down with Jessica Taylor. She's the Senate and Governor's Editor at the Cook Political Report, and of course my colleague. We started with a look at Texas. You do have a state that for the past few cycles has been becoming more competitive as we see demographic changes there. But John Cornyn is also not Ted Cruz. He mm-hmm. Cornyn has some troubling numbers for an incumbent, certainly, but he is sort of not doesn't engender this sort of visceral reaction that Ted Cruz did for many people. So I think that helped Beto raise a lot of money. But also you have MJ Hagar. She was forced into a runoff. It was a very crowded primary back in March, too. And she just sort of hasn't been able to catch fire yet. I mean, she has a really good story. She was a Air Force helicopter pilot, got the Purple Heart, was injured. She, you know, her ads are really interesting. She, you know, is has tattooed and she run, rides a motorcycle and things too. But I think she just sort of hasn't been able to ca- sort of capture the national spotlight in a way that an Amy McGrath hasn't, who I think is actually has a less chance of beating Mitch McConnell, although he is the Senate majority leader. And I think that's where a lot of her money is coming from because right. people are attracted to McConnell and want to defeat him. But on paper, Texas is a better opportunity. And the bottom line is she needs money. She has the nomination now. Maybe money will start flowing to her. She badly needs it to. Jessica, if we were talking back in 2019 or even in early 2020. The thinking was, look, Democrats have some opportunities. They probably pick up a seat or two, but man, it's just it's too hard for them to realistically be able to flip control of the Senate. And now I'd argue it seems like the conventional wisdom is, oh, Democrats are going to take the majority and there's less of a chance they're only going to pick up a seat or two. Is that fair? I think that if we look at the map right now, it has grown since the beginning of the year even. And this map would have looked different if we had a Bernie Sanders as a nominee instead of a Joe Biden. I'm not sure that Democrats could be as competitive as they are in states Mm. like North Carolina, Georgia. I don't think that Steve Bullock would have looked at this race and said, hey, I'm going to get in in Montana. 
Um, so I think having Biden on the ticket sort of has muted some of these socialist arguments that Republicans would have been much easier for Republicans to make against Democratic candidates. But what we have seen, too, is that as we see the shift on the presidential level, these states are becoming to tilt toward Democrats. And, you know, we currently have five seats rated as toss ups, um, Arizona, Colorado, Montana, Maine and North Carolina. And then overall, Democrats need three seats in order to flip the majority if Joe Biden wins four if they don't. But in my mind, it's actually four seats that they need because we have Alabama where Doug Jones, I think, is the underdog there because Democrat won the special election in 2017. It's really hard for lightning to strike twice sort of in a presidential year. So in my mind, Democrats need four seats. And that is very doable when we Mm -hmm. have five seats and toss ups. And we historically see that these toss-ups break largely one way to the party that sort of has the better political climate as well. And I think Arizona and Colorado, especially at this point, are becoming very, very difficult for Republicans. And then I think the other three are just sort of a coin flip. And then you have two Georgia seats, an Iowa and a Kansas sort of waiting in the wings as other opportunities. And how much of this then this changing map is really due to the president's falling numbers? Or is this that these senators also maybe have their own challenges and shortcomings? In Arizona, you have Martha McSally, who was appointed to this seat. This is late John McCain's seat. Um, She was appointed to it after she lost a race to Kirsten Sinema in 2018. So, you know, typically these senators have, you know, six years to sort of repair any, you know, bitter feelings or negatives from a race, she doesn't have that luxury. And the fact that she wasn't elected to this in the beginning, and she's running against who is even Republicans will admit is Democrats best recruit, Mark Kelly, husband of Gabby Gifford, a former astronaut. I mean, astronaut is enough alone, probably people love astronauts. <laughs> and he is just raising mammoth funds, overpowering her has almost double the cash on hand that she has. And that's a race where we certainly we see the presidential level tightening in Arizona, too. And this is a sort of new battleground state for Biden and Trump. But I think that her sort of negatives have made her more endangered there. Um, Colorado, I think Cory Gardner is sort of the victim of an environment where President Trump lost the state by five. I think Gardner is a really good incumbent, um, former chairman of the NRSC. He's a very good campaigner, well-liked. He could run a perfect campaign and still lose if Trump is just getting blown out there. There's only so much that these candidates can sort of run to outperform the president. We know historically that for members of a party where the top of the ticket is really struggling, as this president is doing, they try to distance themselves. That seems really hard to do in this day and age. But are you seeing Republicans trying to do that? And are any of them doing it successfully? And I'm I'm thinking specifically, maybe I'm wrong here, but that Maine may be the one Mm -hmm. place you can get away with that. Maine is and also it's notable that in our toss-up races and these that are most vulnerable, Susan Collins is the only one that isn't a freshman. Um, mm. So she has run before. She's she's better known in the state. She has a brand that sort of these freshman first-term senators don't. Now, she's won her races very easily. She's never really had a truly competitive race 
in this way before. She's used to winning, you know, upwards of 20 points. Um, but her that brand that she has built, that independent brand, has taken a huge hit because she voted for Brett Kavanaugh for the Supreme Court. She voted to acquit President Trump in the, for impe- in the impeachment trial. And I think all of those things have sort of really angered not just progressive activists in the state, but I think have made these sort of independent and, you know, Democratic, more conservative Democratic voters that she got sort of take a second look. But Susan Collins, you know, she has run ads where she's talking about how she's helped lower the price of insulin or she was very instrumental in the Senate in helping shape the PPP program that has really helped a lot of local businesses there. So some of her ads feature testimonials from these small businesses that were helped from ruin during this. But Susan Collins, I think, is a perfect example of just how much the Republican Party has changed. I mean, she is the last New England Republican. Mm -hmm. And that is a very endangered breed. (laughs) And just being a centrist in the Republican Party right now is just shows how hard it is because either you side with your party and you face the wrath of sort of these voters that are really turned off by the president or you disavow them and you sort of spurn them on things. And then you get the wrath of the president who prizes loyalty above all else. And then that hurts you with the base. Jessica Taylor, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks, Amy. Great to be on. Jessica Taylor is the Senate and Governor's Editor for the Cook Political Report. Okay, one more thing I'm thinking about today. Did you hear this this week from the president? I'm very worried about mail-in voting because I think it's subject to tremendous fraud and being rigged. You'll have tremendous fraud if you do these mail-in ballots. Now, absentee ballots are okay. When I heard that from the president, well, I couldn't keep quiet. I took to Twitter and I wrote in all caps... There is no difference between mail-in voting and absentee voting. Now, technically, there is a difference between states that have all-mail elections and those that allow voters to send in a ballot through the mail. Five states, Colorado, Hawaii, Oregon, Utah, and Washington, send every registered voter in the state a ballot. Voters don't need to request one. It comes to them. And none of these states have had any problems with fraud. Just this summer, as a response to the coronavirus pandemic, California passed a new law that every registered voter in the state will get a ballot in the mail this fall. That bill, by the way, passed with almost unanimous support. In every other state, voters need to request an absentee ballot. Some states allow you to vote without having an excuse. Other states, like Texas, require you to give a reason why you can't show up to the polls on Election Day. Now, given the fact that we're in the middle of a major health crisis, it makes all the sense in the world for states to try to make it safe and easy for voters to cast a ballot. Some states, like Michigan, for example, are sending absentee applications to every registered voter in the state. They aren't actual ballots. They're the first step in the process of getting a ballot. But the president isn't trying to make distinctions between the rules in different states. Instead, what he's trying to do is sow distrust and suspicion about the entire process. If the process is suspect, well, then a Biden win should also be viewed suspiciously. What's more, as we heard from WUNC's Rusty Jacobs, it's more than likely that in states like North Carolina, we won't have the final tally of votes completed on election night. And there's a good chance that in the state, as well as many other competitive and closely contested states, 
the winner may not be officially declared for a couple days or more. In a functioning democracy, there's nothing weird or nefarious about having to wait for a couple days for ballots to be accurately counted. But if the president is raising questions about the legitimacy of the process every step of the way, well, a lot of Americans are going to be wary of trusting the process and the outcome. That's why it is so important for every state's election officials to take to every media platform possible to educate voters about how they are conducting elections this year, what they expect in terms of ballots sent in by mail, why it may take more time than folks are used to for those ballots to be counted, and what it means if they don't declare a winner that night, and to be as transparent as possible. This may not be enough to stop rumors and conspiracy theories altogether, but it will help blunt its full impact. That's all for us today. Tanzina Vega is back with you on Monday. As always, I'll be back next week. Shout out to the fine folks that made this show. Debbie Daughtry is our board operator, and she was in every day this week at WNYC to put this show on for you, along with our director and sound designer, Jay Cowett. The show is produced by Amber Hall and Patricia Jacob. Polly Arungu is our digital editor. David Gable is our executive assistant. Lee Hill is our EP. You can find the show on Twitter. It's at The Takeaway. I'm at Amy E. Walter. Lots of good stuff for you in all of those places. And of course, you can call us anytime at 877-8-MY-TAKE. And hey, we had so much to talk about this week in the world of politics. We're giving you two. That's right. Two pods for the price of one, which is, of course, free. Go make sure you listen to that conversation with Nick Fandos of The New York Times and Lee Zoe from Vox in your Politics with Amy Walter feed. Thanks so much for listening. See you next time.